Welcome to This Week in Surgery Centers. If you're in the ASC industry, then you're in the right place. Every week, we'll start the episode off by sharing an interesting conversation we had with our featured guest, and then we'll close the episode by recapping the latest news impacting surgery centers. We're excited to share with you what we have, so let's get started and see what the industry's been up to. Hi, everyone. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. Matt Kramer is the administrator of Northern Arizona Healthcare Surgery Center, and we sat down with him to chat about case acceptance. And we're talking through the sometimes difficult question, should you accept every case? There are two scenarios where Matt's team will not accept a case, and it boils down to patient safety or revenue. So he's sharing why this is important, their approach to uh, coming up with that decision, and the results that they've seen so far. In our news recap, we'll cover a study that compared ChatGPT's responses against physician responses, the importance of discussing transportation with every patient, what will uh, disrupt the ASC industry next, and of course, end the news segment with a positive story about a NICU nurse who adopted a teen and her triplets. And one final reminder, if you are going to be at the ASCA conference in Louisville from May 17th to the 20th, make sure you stop by HST Pathways booth to say hello. I would love to see you all. Uh, During exhibit hall hours, I'll be holding very quick interviews with people right in the booth, um, and we're going to compile all the great responses we get and use it for an upcoming episode that will air in late May. So if you want to share your expertise with our listeners or just come by to say hi, We only need a few minutes of your time. So come find us um, in HST Pathways at booth 519, and we'll have a big booth right in the middle of the floor. You can't miss it. I hope everyone enjoys the episode, and here's what's going on this week in Surgery Centers. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Matt, can you give us a quick overview of your background in the ASC industry? Absolutely. Um, so I'm an administrator for Northern Arizona Healthcare and um, specifically over the Orthopedic and Spine Institute, which is a comprehensive um, institute uh, involving employed providers, um, as well as surgical operations, including um, ambulatory surgery center that we have within our organization. Uh, and I've been doing that for the last uh, four years. Um, prior to that, I was um, also in healthcare um, as a physical therapist in multiple settings. Um, and a healthcare administrator um, with other HCOs uh, in Arizona. Fantastic. Um, And I want to talk to you today a little bit about case acceptance in an ASC environment. Uh, Because surgery centers aren't hospitals, it's a different business model. And as more and more case volume gets shifted to outpatient facilities, uh, you know, I think that that ASCs are going to need to start paying more attention to case acceptance, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and Matt, what's your, what's your point of view been on case acceptance? How, how do you, how do you think about that at your current facility? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a tricky situation to kind of manage. Um, obviously, um, ambulatory surgery centers are, high, are built highly on efficiencies and um, volume and throughput, um, you know, as well as a, a you know, a great experience for not just the provider performing the surgeries, but for the uh, the patients themselves and their recovery. So um, we're trying to execute on those fronts. Um, at the same time, um, many times those margins are are much less than what they would be 
in a hospital-based facility um, with a you know with an ASC fee schedule versus an HOPD fee schedule um, that also comes into play. So how do you um, you know try to achieve the best outcomes for your patients and for your providers? Provide the throughput, uh, but then also continue to manage a positive margin um, from a financial perspective. Um, you know, and then you know be able to select or, um, you know, accept those cases to keep those providers happy and wanting to bring those cases uh, to your facility. Right. So, you know, um, procedure margin, it's balancing the procedure margin with, with the patient outcomes. H- how do you balance those two things? What's been your approach to evaluating cases? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely not a you know a straightforward or an easy approach. Um, all the different variables that are in play are things that we have to take into consideration: um, patient stability, um, the the type of case being performed, uh, medical equipment or medical supplies required to be able to perform those cases, um, staff staff training. Um, some of those cases require additional training um, or specialization for um, you know safe case completion. Um, and then ultimately reimbursement, you know, um, those those payers that are that are supplying the, the compensation to the facility, um, you know, in order to be able to perform those cases for the, their covered lives, um, you know, have variances in whether or not they're a government payer or whether they're a commercial payer and contractually what they're obligated to perform or provide um, and then what they're actually authorized to provide as well. So it's um, it's a matter of trying to, to navigate all those, those various um, variables in that one equation, which is that one patient case, um, and determine whether or not uh, it's something we can safely achieve um, as a comprehensive team, um, and then still manage to keep the lights on. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And you, you mentioned a lot of inputs that go into the case, whether that's <laughs> the supplies and that's reimbursement rates and stuff. And what, one of the things we hear a good amount talking to our customers is especially in the orthopedics world hey we don't always know all of our supply costs especially on the implant side going in sometimes we find out after the fact based on implants or supplies that were used a a case could have less margin or even be you know non-profitable and kind of finding that after the fact how how at your facility how well do you feel like you've got a good understanding of what supplies go into the case and what's your, what's the cost of that case going to be? You know, um, I think we're, we're getting better. Um, we're not where we want to be by any means. Um, I think it's a continual journey, um, which, you know, most performance or process improvement is, um, you know, I'll say two years ago, it wasn't occurring on a, at least on a regular, a regular basis. And the information we had was, I would state maybe 80% accurate. Um, you know, nowadays, I, I believe the systems that we have in place, the individuals that we have um, contributing to performing those analyses, um, you know, are, are much, much tighter, um, you know, 90, 95% accurate. Um, and we've built a bit of a database in identifying exactly all those measures you were just referencing. So, you know, how much staff do we need? Um, what is the cost of our staff, our anesthesia, um, the just the overhead, the fixed um, cost associated with running the facility and how that contributes to your overall volume. Um, and then also those variable costs. So having implants, um, having capitated contracts with those vendors um, to ensure that in this facility, it's an implant we can't afford to, um, to utilize. Um, and then the time that it takes to perform that case, because you mentioned a couple of things there, you know, 
and, and we've both talked about it thus far, you know, supply cost and your, and your labor, um, you know, or your, um, your employees are your greatest areas of, of overhead. Um, and so how do you best re- leverage or, you know, those resources, um, you know, or minimize the, the cost as it pertains to the supply. Um, but then how do you leverage that resource of your salary and your benefits of all your, your employees? And so that comes down to case consolidation or block utilization, turnover times. A lot of the metrics that most of the people that will view this um, are very familiar with, um, but really creating a bit of a database as far as um, by case type, by provider, um, and even by payer source um, on whether or not this is going to be uh, either a, a tight margin, um, a positive margin, or even you know sometimes a negative margin. Um, in which case we may can we may consider continuing to perform that case, um, just depending on the necessity of being of you know is it something that's emergent? Um, is it truly the best place to perform that case for that patient? Um, provider preference, those types of things um, still come into play. So it's even with all that information, it's never really just a black and white, unfortunately. Sure, sure. But it does sound like with your database, you've got it more dialed in th- than some, and you've got a kind of a good data set around it. Do you, do you typically make decisions on a, if, if you are going to not accept the case? Is that typically kind of a, a case-by-case evaluation, or is it more, hey, by case type, or the intersection of case type and payors, you know, maybe there's some on the matrix that, that aren't a good fit and some some that are. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, between those two options is definitely more of a case by case assessment. Um, you know, we'll never just say, hey, it, it's just because it's a, you know, whatever type of case, um, we'll say a hip scope case um, with this type of payer or this type of implant um, or anchor system that we're, we're, you know, a hard yes or a hard no on that case. We still will go through the analysis, um, you know, by provider, by time, by necessity, emergency, um, all those other factors that I've mentioned to determine, you know, nine times out of 10, we might, we might accept this case, but that there's one time we might not. Um, you know, and so we'll, we'll never just be absolute across the board. Okay. So it sounds like there's a decent amount of kind of effort and time on the front end to, to yeah. evaluate these cases. Yes. A lot of rigor, um, in, in, by all means, it's no one individual, you know, for instance, myself as the administrator, I don't, I don't make the call. Um, I rely on the, on the consensus of the team. We've got, um, you know, a lot of people behind the scenes, you know, with our authorization verification departments, um, our RN clinical manager overseeing, you know, the, the operations of the center itself, um, you know, their team of charges, our, our lead anesthesiologist, our medical, our physician medical director over the, the facilities, everybody's coming together to, um, you know, perform this analysis and then provide their, their recommendation on how to move forward or not. Okay. You mentioned safety earlier, Matt, and how that can factor into case acceptance too. How, how does that come into your evaluation process is, you know, the, the ability to do a case safely? Yeah, I mean, that's got to be first and foremost. Um, you know, if you're not performing safe cases, uh, you're not going to be in business very long. Um, forget the finances of it. Forget you know, how shiny or, or great your technology or your building might be. Um, if you're having poor outcomes or, um, you know, unsafe practices, the, it's only a matter of time before you're no longer operating. So that's got to be first and foremost. Um, you know, we've we've had situations where we've had to um, unfortunately refer 
right? In my case, I believe fortunately refer a case um, deferred from our, our facility over to the main hospital because the case is 100% appropriate to be performed um, in an ambulatory surgery center by um, procedural type, by provider, um, everything in place, even by ASA scores, which is, you know, one of our anesthesia measures of safety. Um, however, in deeper review, um, comprehensive review of that patient's history, we find some, you know, anomalies that have us considered, or I'm sorry, have us concerned um, regarding how that patient might um, potentially have difficulty with their recovery post anesthesia in the PACU, whether it be phase one or phase two. And, um, you know, is that a longer length of stay? Is it a potential transfer to a higher level of care? Do we believe that they're, they're not going to be able to um, uh, return to a normal vitals um, level in the time that we have in order to achieve that? And so um, we might have to defer that case over to the main hospital where we know that that patient can spend a longer period of time in the PACU, um, you know, even be potentially um, transferred into an observation bed overnight um, so they can safely discharge home the next morning um, where we don't necessarily have that luxury in the in the surgery center. Got it. Okay. Um, so that, that's helpful, really helpful in terms of the overall framing of, of how you think about uh, the case acceptance across those two areas. In terms of giving our listeners some specific examples, maybe to bring it to light a little bit, can you share an example on the safety side of, of maybe a case that you guys evaluated and said, hey, this this doesn't feel right for us? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that that case actually that I just referenced was an actual case where we had a, a, a very appropriate um, patient coming in for, um, and I believe it was a, a shoulder injury, um, you know, maybe a rotator cuff. It was something very... Um, you know, typical of an ambulatory surgery center and, and, and orthopedics for that matter. Um, but unfortunately, some of these other comorbidities or um, past medical history complications, um, you know, had us reassess or reevaluate the appropriateness of this patient um, due to some of their um, respiratory based com um, complex complexities or complications um, that uh, we we deferred that case over to the main OR, um, you know, where you, you don't typically see a rotator cuff, um, you know, repair performed. Um, but as a result of this patient having, um, you know, some perceived difficulties with their ability to recover post anesthesia, uh, we felt it was just the safer call for them. And same question for you on the financial margin side. Can you give an example of when you evaluated the case and said, hey, from a margin perspective, this doesn't seem like you know, a good one for us to take on. Yeah. Um, very similarly, orthopedic case, um, ACL, um, allograph case, and, um, you know, was scheduled and no pair issues, no past medical history, um, you know, complexities um, that would kind of cloud our ability to accept the case. Um, but in speaking with the provider and in looking at their medical supply requests, um, identifying that they were actually looking for two, um, two graphs for this patient versus one. Um, and then when we looked at that, uh, that particular case and had the conversation with the performing surgeon, um, you know, they mentioned that this was in this particular instance, the best, um, best practice for this patient was going to be to use two different graphs um, and combine those graphs into this repair. Um, you know, and our approach was to educate the provider on how this was not um, a financially sustainable model for us, um, given the amount of reimbursement that we would receive for this case, the amount of supply 
um, in the tissue itself, but then also in um, a longer case time, um, the the labor to support that. Um, you know, we showed this this particular provider how it was going to be a, a significant loss on this particular case, and if they wish to use this type of um, approach for this patient, and they truly believe that this was the the only way to manage this particular patient, um, that we were going to defer this case, and they would need to perform this case in the main OR at the hospital. Um, and this provider um, essentially said, "Well, you know, um, I could probably come around on this, and um, you know, we can make do with this one graft, and we can have some, you know, further conversations after this case is performed." I really believe the ASC is the appropriate setting for this this patient, so we'll we'll move forward with just one graft, um, and you know, um, and go ahead and complete the case, which was then a you know a financially viable option for us, um, you know. But I think it was it was an eye opening experience for the provider. They just I think they just had an under um, understanding that you know they were going to make we make boatloads of money on these cases. Uh, so just sharing some of the, the margin information and the cost of doing business with them, I think was a little eye opening and um, they started to maybe reconsider some of their approaches with particular patients. Right. So a lot of times the providers of facilities don't necessarily have the information on the overall profitability as they're, you know, d developing the list of materials. Right. And so, Correct. yeah, you know, uh, and the, in the fact safety, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say, in fact, um, you know, that's that's 100 percent correct. I would say the majority of the time um, versus many times, I would say probably 90 percent of the time the providers don't know. Um, and of those, you know, of that 90 percent of the time, um, you know, those providers almost 100 percent of the time want to know. Um, so they want that access to information. Um, they want to know if they're the most expensive provider you know, performing this case type. And, um, you know, I, I will also say that orthopedic surgeons are very competitive uh, human beings um, and they're always looking to excel, um, whether that's outcome based or just to be, you know, one of the most affordable. And so they want to be able to produce an outcome that, you know, is excellent and, um, you know, leads the league in, in uh, quality, but then also is also, you know, one of the you know, most least or least expensive options um, for their patients um, or for their surgical, you know, center partners. Um, and so they, they're looking for access to that information. Exactly. And, and, and what's interesting is those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, right? The, the safety side and, and, and the cost side. So that's, that's, yeah. that's what's interesting. Correct. <laughs> you know, and, and we make strategic decisions sometimes to, um, to knowingly accept a case that is going to be, um, you know, a margin loss or a negative margin um, because it is the right thing to do. It's the right, it's the right um, approach for the patient. It's the right um, safety or outcome um, focused decision, um, knowing that it's not across the board um, and potentially it's, you know, it's to help assist a, a surgeon, you know, achieve their, um, you know, their targets or their goals as well. Yep. And so you guys have been thinking about this at your center in a thoughtful way in terms of kind of the margin side of these cases. Um, has it, have you seen the impact on the overall facility profitability? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not a, um, a quick turnaround, so to, you know, so to say, so to speak, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you get it right um, more times than not. And then you start to get it right even more uh, and more. And so over time you see, your profitability for particular case types um, or quarter over quarter or year over year start to improve. Um, we've seen a, a 
you know, consistent 60, 60% roughly improvement in our financial performance. Um, you know, again, incrementally case by case type provider by provider, um, you know, and then eventually quarter over quarter and year over year. So, um, you know, getting ourselves into a position where we've, um, we're starting to hardwire that model to then, you know, ensure financial sustainability long-term. That's fantastic. You start stacking up some of those 50, 60% quarter over quarter improvement. That That's going to really add up over time. You know, um, it's it's the little things of taking two teams, um, you know, in two different ORs and being able to consolidate them into one, um, you know, improving you know, the efficiencies of your turnover times, um, you know, saying yes to some of those cases that, um, that are, you know, longer, um, but then also being able to say no to some of those cases um, that you believe to be too long or too expensive um, you know, to, to perform or that potentially allow for quality, um, quality indicators to not be met, you know, as far as transfers to higher level of, um, care and things like that. Um, and they do, they add up, um, those, those one-off decisions over time, um, start to create a trend. Um, and then they build a culture, you know, everybody's involved, everybody's engaged, um, you know, from the, the frontline staff, whether they're in the OR and the pre-op or PACU space, um, SPD space or in the insurance verification space, everybody's aware of what it is we're trying to achieve. And then we engage our, our physician partners to, um, to come along with that journey. Um, and it makes all the difference in the world. Love it. Final question for you, Matt. And we do this every week with our guests. What's one thing our listeners can do this week to improve their surgery centers? Um, you know, just the easy thing to say is, you know, just start looking at these things, you know, start digging into these, um, these details and start kind of performing your own root cause analysis. Um, you know, we started off by just starting to create a spreadsheet. I mean, it was one simple spreadsheet where we started to look at case types um, by provider, by times, um, the, the cost of supplies used in those cases. And then based on our, our general contract averages, what we would expect to see from a reimbursement perspective. And then as we started to build that, um, that list out, um, started to notice some trends, you know, and that might've been a trend by case or by a vendor or by a contracted payer uh, or provider, and then have some conversations around that. You know, um, this case becomes viable where it might not be viable today. It might become viable if we're able to reduce the case time by 10 minutes. And what are the things that we're doing as part of our preoperative setup um, or our closing process or our room turnover time um, in order to shave off 10 minutes. And if you shave off 10 minutes and you save, you know, $100 or $1,000, now all of a sudden a potential loss on a case um, is a gain. And you now you can recruit more and more of those cases, not to mention the byproduct typically when you're faster and more efficient is a much happier surgeon, um, you know, happier patient. It's less anesthesia, it's faster recoveries and better outcomes. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Oh, it was my pleasure. I appreciate you guys having me on. As always, it has been a busy week in healthcare, so let's jump right in. This next story I love. So for an industry that has been notoriously slow to adopt new technologies, it certainly has not been ignoring the latest, which is uh, AI or ChatGPT. 
we're already hearing tons of stories about healthcare leaders using AI in multiple ways, um, assisting with clinical note-taking. Um, it's being used to generate hypothetical patient questions for medical students to practice with. Um, last week, we reported that it's being integrated into Epic's EHR next year. Um, and there are so many other examples. But most recently, a new study found that ChatGPT might actually be useful and successful in providing high-quality answers to patient questions, um, specifically during a time uh, right now where doctors and nurses are incredibly busy. So the research evaluated two sets of answers to patient um, questions. One set of answers was written by physicians, and the other was written by ChatGPT. Um, a panel of healthcare professionals then reviewed all of the responses and actually determined that ChatGPT's answers were significantly more detailed and empathetic, and the panel preferred ChatGPT's responses 79% of the time. Um, so I think what's interesting about this is that we're not talking about accuracy, Um Obviously, you know, the physician's responses were completely accurate. There was actually only, uh, let's see, there was only a handful of the physician responses that were deemed unacceptable by the panel. Um, but the accuracy and, you know, experience is not coming into play here. And I, I but I think the most interesting part to me is the empathy factor. Um, it feels wrong that an AI tool could be deemed more empathetic than a human being. But if you think about it, it really all comes down to time. So the reality is that ChatGPT doesn't have a jam-packed schedule like our providers do. It isn't suffering from burnout. It isn't thinking about their next case or the fact that they've answered the same question, you know, 2,000 times in their career, um, which is the reality for our, our physicians and our providers. So it's not that the doctors aren't empathetic. They just don't have the time to express it. So... You know, thinking through this, I think the workflow might be that, you know, the patient question comes in, chat, GP, chat GPT could do the heavy lifting and answering the patient uh, question initially, but then the physician can review the response for accuracy and, and have final sign off before the patient does receive a response. Um, so that way it's being used as a supporting tool and it's a huge time saver and we're still not, you know, losing that human element and we don't have to be worried that we're sharing something incorrect with the patient. In our second story, a new study reveals that patients without reliable transportation miss more healthcare appointments, which makes it harder for them to manage chronic diseases, receive preventative care, uh, make it to surgery, um, and manage any other healthcare needs in general. Um, so there's an element of that that is, of course, a little bit obvious, right? If someone doesn't have reliable transportation, how could we um, expect them to reliably show up for their um, appointments? But it not only, you know, it not only affects the health of the patients, which is a whole important conversation, but it also creates a financial burden on healthcare providers. It's actually estimated that missed medical appointments can cost the industry as much as $150 billion annually in the U.S. alone. So 
what do we do about this? Um, in response, some healthcare providers are beginning to offer or continuing to offer transportation services to patients. So some are partnering with the usual suspects like Uber and Lyft to give significant, um, significantly discounted rides. Other providers are using community vans or buses or just, you know, offering reimbursements for the regular taxi fares. Um, and obviously we want to make sure that everybody in our community is able to make it to an appointment if they need it. Um, obviously receiving, receiving regular care or even being able to follow up on your, after surgery to your appointments will help avoid, you know, that 911 call and the, and the emergency visit. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway from this study is the importance of addressing transportation as a social determinant of health um, and investing in solutions to make sure that your patients have reliable access to get to you when they need to. Um, it's all of our responsibility within our communities to address this. So um, specifically adults with uh, disabilities, Black adults, people with low incomes, and those on public insurance are more likely to report going without healthcare um, because of transportation issues. So it's important to get ahead of any potential transportation issues during the pre-assessment process. Um, if you are interested in learning more about social determinants of health, Maura Cash is the VP of Clinical Strategies here at HST Pathways, and she will actually be speaking at ASCA in Louisville um, on Thursday, May 18th in the morning. Um, she has one of the morning sessions. Um, and the topic is the ASC industry's role in reducing the disparity of care. And she will be covering this in detail. So um, as I said, it's really something that is the community's responsibility to make sure all of our members are able to get to um, their healthcare appointments, their surgery appointments when they need to. In our third story, Becker's ASC asked four ASC leaders the same question, what will disrupt the ASC industry next? Um, now, they all had really interesting responses. We'll include the link in the episode show notes. I, I highly recommend reading through all of them. Um, you know, they covered a lot of the usual trends, consolidation, uh, team-based care delivery models, supply chain, and staffing woes. Um, but I wanted to share in detail the responses from Raghu Reddy. He is the chief administrative officer um, of Surge Center of Western Maryland. And he had five distinct disruptors that he shared that I wanted to pass along that I thought um, were great. Um, the first is the evolution of out-of-the-hospital strategy for payers in CMS. We've talked about this um, a couple times now. Uh, specifically, cardiology is making significant inroads already. The second is technology is going to impact the ASC industry significantly with robotics, AI, and 3D printing. Uh, the addition of more procedures to the ASC covered procedures list by CMS and the rise of hybrid ASCs to adapt to the reimbursement shifts. The fourth is private equity firms will dominate the mergers and acquisitions market and hospitals will increase their focus on their ASC strategy. And the fifth is implementation of value-based care and stringent certificate of need law states will have to adapt to lower the healthcare costs. So I thought those five points were nice and succinct, and he did an excellent job summarizing what's to come. Um, and I agree that it will be especially interesting to see what happens with the ASC CPL this year, given the push um, we're seeing from inpatient to outpatient settings. 
And to end our new segment on a positive note, Katrina Mullen is a NICU nurse from Cleveland, Ohio, and she has adopted a teen mom and her newborn triplets. The nurse developed a strong bond with the teen when the baby was in her care. Um, The teen had been in foster care and didn't really have a stable home environment, um, which inspired Mullen to adopt her and provide her with a safe and loving home. Um, The adoption was finalized in January 2021, and the family is now thriving together. So she adopted the mom and her three babies, which is such a beautiful story. I'm so glad that they all got to stay together. And, you know, I especially love this story because it really highlights the special relationship that can form between a nurse, a healthcare provider, and the patient, um, and really the impact that they can have on each other's lives. And that news story officially wraps up this week's podcast. Thank you, as always, for spending a few minutes of your week with us. Make sure to subscribe or leave a review on whichever platform you're listening from. I hope you have a great day, and we will see you again next week.